This case, Karen, oh my gosh. A 12-year-old child found murdered in her own home. It hit the community so hard when it happened, but it's still so unbelievably horrific. Her case, now cold and forgotten. This case just needs us to go to work on it. I'm CBS 46 anchor Karen Greer, and you're listening to CSI Atlanta, the podcast. Each episode, I'll take you on a deep dive into some of Georgia's most fascinating cold cases. I'm working alongside CBS 46 crime scene investigator Show Mac McCollum and her team at the Cold Case Investigative Research Institute. Ricola Coleman was a remarkable child. She was imaginative, she was smart, everybody liked her. She was religious and just a seventh grader that was dedicated to school and was a good girl. In 1989, she lived in an apartment complex in Southwest Atlanta. The cluster of small brick buildings was, at the time, part of Atlanta's housing projects. Bercola couldn't remember a time when she hadn't lived there. She'd spent the majority of her life in the modest apartment with her mother and three-year-old twin sisters. Having just started seventh grade, she was beginning to think about her future. She saw herself someday becoming a dancer or an actress. Until then, she was focused on doing well in school, being a role model for her baby sisters and helping her single working mother around the apartment. And that's exactly what she was doing in the last hours of her life. September 12, 1989, Ricola's school bus delivered her to the apartment complex. The heat of the day rolled over the asphalt and hit her as she stepped off the bus. It would still feel like summer in Atlanta for a few more weeks, but unlike some of her other classmates, Ricola didn't stick around to play outside. Every day, she went straight home to her apartment and called her mother. The first thing she did every day after school, she would call her mom. Hey, I'm inside, everything's good, everything's okay. So her mom wanted to make sure, you know, lock the door, you know, start your homework, whatever. This particular day, her mom reminded her, hey, go start the laundry, and when I get home, I'll finish it up, sort of thing. So the laundry at their apartment complex was two buildings over, which isn't that far. And again, this is her neighborhood, it's her community, everybody knows her. So she takes the laundry, and we know she made it to that building because their laundry was, in fact, in washing machines. Her mother worked as a secretary at the State Department of Revenue. It would be another few hours before she came home from work. But at 12 years old, Ricola was used to the responsibility of taking care of herself in that window of time before her mother got home. Being as familiar as the family was with their neighbors, it may not have felt like Ricola was alone at all. Around 5.30, her mother walked through the front door. She expected to find Ricola working quietly on her homework, but that wouldn't be the case on this day. Her mom finds her tragically on the kitchen floor. She's been beaten about the head, strangled with her own jump rope, raped, 
and sodomized with a broomstick. We're talking a baby, a child. Yeah. Her mother screamed for help as she held Ricola in her arms. Some accounts say Ricola was still alive when her mother found her, but by the time she was taken to the hospital, she was already dead. What's the community? What was their response after this? Oh murder? my gosh. Complete heartbreak, complete shock, because chances are it's one of their own. And one of their own, meaning somebody that lives in that neighborhood or frequents that neighborhood. So immediately, they had over 100 volunteers going door to door, asking everybody, did you see anything this day? Do you know anything? There was a $10,000 reward. I mean, they were not playing around. They wanted answers because they did not want this person among them. Ricola's murder impacted the community to such an extent, the local newspaper reported 1,200 people attended her funeral. Many of them were her schoolmates and teachers, all of whom were shocked to know something so vile could happen to a sweet girl. The question on everyone's mind, was she targeted by someone she knew, or was this a crime of opportunity committed by a stranger? Either way, the killer must have known Ricola was alone. Not just children, but everybody's a creatures of habit. And parents tend to tell children, as soon as you get out of that school bus, go straight home. Mm -hmm. Well, that means every day they're A to B. And there's no doubt who the latchkey kids are, right? Because right. they're the ones running straight home. The rest of the kids can take their time. Their mom's waiting on them. They're going to have snacks, whatever. They're going to come right back outside and play. Those other children are usually not allowed to. Yeah. Somebody's stalking you. They don't have to watch you more than two days to know that about you. So she obviously went, took the laundry, and they followed her back home? Quite possibly they followed her back home. Or they were waiting. Because if somebody had been watching her, even just for a short period of time, they knew this was her routine. They knew her mama wasn't home yet. They didn't have to stalk her very long. But quite possibly, the person knew her even better than that. There's a possibility. Canvassing the neighborhood didn't lead anywhere for investigators. Each knock on an apartment door was met by residents who wanted to help, but simply hadn't seen anything out of the ordinary that day. It meant police had to work with the evidence they had from the scene. Well, the first thing, as far as evidence, is her body. I mean, that's good evidence all day. You've got hair from the perpetrator. We know she was raped, so there's possibly other evidence. There was some tissue under her fingernails, the jump rope, the broom, and then there was a partial palm print on the refrigerator. The tissue under her nails wouldn't be tested for several more years when DNA testing would become more accessible and reliable. In 1989, we didn't know a damn thing about it, really, right? Because um, we had, even with Wayne Williams, it was all about fibers. It wasn't a lot about DNA. And... Most people probably didn't have a real good understanding about DNA until the late 90s. That meant the hair and the partial palm print were the most solid evidence detectives had to work with at the time. And it turned out to be the only lead they had because the palm print matched to one person in particular who was already known to police because he was at the apartment when Bricola was found. When her mama found her, 
Her mom, of course, freaks out, starts screaming for help. This person, and we'll just call him Mr. W. Mr. W runs into the apartment under the guise of he's trying to revive her. He's trying to help. And he says that's how his palm print got on the refrigerator. A simple enough explanation, but police noted the pubic hair found at the scene could have recently come from him. It wouldn't be enough evidence by today's standards, but in 1989, detectives were hopeful that the hair and the palm print would build the case against Mr. W. They wondered if he was already near enough to hear Bercola's mother screaming, was it because he had been in the apartment before she came home? This evidence was what police believed would close the case, but it wouldn't turn out to be that easy. Next time on CSI Atlanta. People would talk if they could. I believe they didn't know anything. This person was able to get in and out of that neighborhood unseen, which means he belonged there. Nobody was looking for him because he's a staple. You don't tend to note things that are supposed to happen. Until then, subscribe to CSI Atlanta, the podcast, and check out our full stories on CBS46.com. CSI Atlanta is brought to you by CBS 46, WGCL in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is hosted by me, Karen Greer, and CBS 46 crime scene investigator Cheryl Mack McCullum. This episode is produced by Rhiannon Youngbauer and Natasha Lee. Sound design by Ray Merriman. Do it again, three, two. This episode was produced by Rhiannon Youngbauer and Natasha Lee with sound design by Ray Merriman.